Money FM 89.3, the best of Saturday mornings. International News Review. We are back with Steve Oaken, the senior advisor at McClarty Associates at our International News Review. Good morning, Steve. Are the rents in Singapore coming down? That is a very good question, and when my, they are. when my lease is up in February, I will let you know if the one rent that I want to come down, the one most important rent the does only come one that down. Matters. The, the one that matters. Well, I mean, the one that matters. We're reaching a point, Steve, where the International uh, News Review has to be re- renamed the Domestic Rental Review <laughs> with Steve Oaken. Until my lease gets renewed, and then we can go on we to a different move on. We can move on to a different subject. So from now through February, tune in every Saturday. Yeah. And this- for the updates on rents in Singapore, you know, I I um we I I did a fireside chat with Jacqueline Poe, who's number two at uh, the Economic Development Board for uh, a private equity and venture capital conference, and we talked a lot about Singapore, what it's doing to attack attract private capital, how much inflow of private capital is coming, what regulations need to be put in place um, to, to govern that in, in both, you know, from a, uh, a regulatory perspective, but also an, a, an investment perspective. But of course, I took the opportunity to ask Jackie what the EDB was going to do about rents. What can they do about it? Well, she it's, said they're it's a private market. She said that what is a private market? But that doesn't mean a private market doesn't mean that government has where has the government no owns ability, most of the land, well, right? <laughs> or or the government has no ability yeah. to put to put parameters around that. New York City, famous for its rent control, so there's there are things government could do. I mean, Jackie made the point that there was a supply crunch during COVID uh, because a lot of the construction stopped and that now so much new supply is going to come online that is going to mitigate uh, the the rental increase that have come because while we've had the supply crunch, we've had the demand increase. So let's see if demand abates a bit and let's see if supply comes online and if EDB is correct where they see a potential slowdown in rental increases. But my A-level economics would tell me that extra supply coming online will just maybe slow the rent increases. You're not going to get rent decreases, are you? No, and I and that's also a, a point that she made, is that rents over the past decade have been relatively stagnant um, and or, or reasonable in terms of increases. And so part of what we're seeing now is rents catching up. Part of what we're seeing now is Singapore becoming such an attractive place to live and work, especially with what's going on in China and Hong Kong. And then part of it is that we had a artificial uh, supply crunch because of COVID. So when you get all three of those things, you get a huge spike in rents. But no, rent's not going to go back to what it was in, in 2019 and 2020. The question is, will the will it come down off of its peak? And that's what mm. we're all looking for. Well, th- this idea of, hey, it's not such a bad thing. The, the rents haven't gone up much in 10 years. I don't think helps most of us that saw this massive jump from a budget, from a personal budget perspective. Now, of course, as with many things that are looked at in this country, we could take the 20 year view. Uh, but um, I don't think most people do because most people are in it, you know, this month, this year, how much is coming out of their budget for you know, goods and services that they, they might have. So. And and when you are up now, you're either going to be paying more or you're going to be moving and you're going to move into a, 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 an area 
outside of the CBD or a, a more central area, or you're going to leave. And some people have left. We, we have friends who have said we cannot afford the rent increase. We're going to move to Bali and then just come to Singapore when we have to uh, for work. So, yeah, for those two years, it was, it was I think, really painful. The question is what the next two years going to bring. And when you read the headlines that FedEx is moving its Asia headquarters yeah. from Singapore to Singapore from Hong Kong, you see demand is going to continue to increase. Yeah. And that was going to be my point, the FedEx thing. Yes, you can lose a few, I'm assuming, Western expats to Bali. As long as you've got the influx coming in from the likes of Hong Kong and China, what's realistically going to change? Supply and demand will continue. Well, that's the, I mean, that is the big question is now, you know, some people are saying, well, you know, China and, and Hong Kong, you know, the COVID restrictions have gone away. People have gotten used to the changes in laws so that, that people, are, not only is the slowdown, not only are people not going to leave, maybe some people who came here to get away from the COVID restrictions are going to come back. And of course, Neil, the rejoinder to that is, look at what FedEx just did, yeah. right? you know, mm-hmm. and, and. They say that 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 they're bringing the you know their senior leadership here. Those are the people who are going to be spending more on the rents. It's going to drive up the cost for everybody else. That then is going to trickle down, and you're going to see rental increases. You know, not just you know off of Orchard Road and and you know in the Central Business District, but but through HD HDBs and everywhere else. When you look at the. Um you know, big companies that come in, I'm not signaling, singling out uh, FedEx or anybody else, but, you know, their senior leaderships are going to be looking for three or four bedroom, either condos or semi-Ds or landed property or whatever. They generally don't care too much about the cost. They're going to absorb that cost if they need to have a certain person or persons mm-hmm. be in Singapore. And they know they're just going to do it. And so, to your point earlier, Neil, it's the COE argument. It's not going to bring. It's not going to do anything to help bring pricing down because All they're going to pay whatever they need to pay to get people into a dwelling by whatever date they're supposed to arrive in Singapore. But then, then, but then I was you know, talking to a friend yesterday, you know, and, and it's just her and her husband, but they have a three bedroom, and it's, and I went, oh, you know, basically, why do you need a three bedroom? Because we work from home now, yeah. So we need the home offices now, and we don't want to be sitting at our kitchen table. And so now when you have offices closed and so what they're doing, they're moving out. They were off a river valley and now they're moving out, you know, further, further out of the CBD in in the central area because their rents have gone up too much. And so the rents then on the East Coast go up and then people on the East Coast have to move. So, yeah, just it is the the senior executives coming in. But there is a trickle down throughout the country. And let's hope EDB is right and and that the supply that comes online is going to offset that continued increased demand as Singapore becomes so much more attractive. But let me ask you very briefly about FedEx. We must mention, you know, as you said, moving its Asia-Pacific regional headquarters to Singapore from Hong Kong. At what point, if ever, will China be concerned about this? I know you've talked about this many times before as if they've almost written off Hong Kong at this point. Can this continue indefinitely, this this migration out of Hong Kong to Singapore and elsewhere? Well, it depends what you mean by is China concerned. And if by China you mean the the leadership in Beijing and the Communist Party, the Communist Party's goal is to maintain power and control. And if Hong Kong goes from being Asia's you know, world city to being a gateway to China to 
in, to move forward on the party's goals, then that's what they're going to do, and that's what they've been doing. And you see with the broadening of the national security law that that is driving some people out. And so, no, I don't think you're going to see Hong Kong become what it was. It's going to be It's going to be an important city. It's going to be a, 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 a really great city in terms of accessing China, but that's what it's going to be. It's not going to be what it was. All right. We have to move on to our next topic, which is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity. It's a mouthful, so let's just call it IPEF. In, uh, instead, it's May tw- no, in May 2022, about a year ago, the, the U.S. launched IPEF. Uh, with Australia, Brunei, Dar es Salaam, uh, Fiji, India, Indonesia, Japan, Korea, Malaysia, New Zealand, Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam. It's supposed to advance sustainability, inclusiveness, and economic growth and fairness uh, throughout those economies. This is a big week coming up because IPEF is coming to Singapore for big talks. Tell us about it, Steve. Yeah, this is the Biden administration's entire economic strategy of coming back as a leader in the Asia Pacific. The, 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 you know, the U.S. had been a leader in the Asia Pacific when it came to economics and trade, had its free trade agreement with Singapore, free trade agreement with Korea, free trade agreement with Australia, led the negotiations and the signing of the Trans-Pacific Partnership under President Obama. On day three of his administration, President Trump walks away from TPP. We lose U.S. leadership in the region on economics. And this is the Biden administration's attempt to come back. That's why it's so important. It's why 13 other countries have signed on to these talks. The negotiations are here in Singapore this week, hoping to lead to some agreement to be signed in the United States later this year. So it's a really critical week. And it's no surprise that Singapore is hosting it. Singapore is great at hosting these events. Singapore is great at convening. Singapore has leaders on trade through the Ministry of Trade and Industry. So a really important week. And there are going to be hundreds, if not thousands or so people focused on that this week, myself, of course, included. Why now? I mean, there was some criticism early on that Biden, President Biden was a little slow to get back into the Asia-Pacific region. So why now? And secondly, how binding will some of these agreements possibly be? What can we see coming out of this conference, potentially? Why now? Because... Everybody knows the U.S. political calendar. Everybody knows that during a presidential election year, you don't talk about trade, right? Foreign policy doesn't really matter. You've got to get it done this year. And that the U.S. is hosting APEC this year uh, in California, and it brings a natural opportunity for those IPEF members who are APEC members to come to the U.S. to get the momentum to get something signed. Now, Neil, the big question is how binding is this going to be? Because... The U.S. has made clear that it will not do a formal trade agreement. It is not going to do anything that needs congressional approval to lower tariffs to go into the U.S. because labor will oppose it. Republicans all of a sudden are starting to oppose trade. So you need to find some framework that matters. And so what the Biden administration has hit upon is let's talk about things like 
supply chain security. Let's talk about making supply chains resilient so we don't have the disaster of what happened during the pandemic when medicines and PPE and the like couldn't get through. Let's talk about how we can find a way to become more sustainable by bringing in public-private partnerships. So there are things that can get done that will make a difference short of a formal trade agreement, but, and this week's so important. But Steve, that, that, one, that one phrase you put in there, things that can get done that will make a difference, will it really? I mean, yeah. without specifics, without goals, without targets, without, without come binding on, talk, agreements. You know, the old saying, talk is cheap, right? And, you know, the U.S. had a golden opportunity with the Trans-Pacific Partnership to actually get something done that everybody agreed on that would have specific goals and targets and regimes in place. And IPEF to this day doesn't seem, you know, the, the old saying, there isn't any there there. What is actually there with IPEF other than a bunch of people spending a lot of money to fly into Singapore and sit around and talk about stuff? We all agree we need better supply chains. But if it's not codified in some way, what good is it going to do? Well, if you can, and they're aiming to get a, an early harvest on this come this month in, in Detroit when, when the leaders of, of APEC, the trade ministers, are meeting. So, for example, on supply chains. The pandemic era showed we need an early warning system so that the supply chains can adapt and you can make sure the medicines and the, and, and, and the, you know, the PPE and the like get where they're needed to go. IPEF can bring that system in place so that we can get an early warning system. IPEC can put a troubleshooting mechanism in place so that when goods are stopped uh, at the border, you can get them through because there's an exception for for pandemic related materials. So there are practical things where you can bring the 14 countries together that can make mm. a difference. You can bring countries together to figure out how are we going to talk about carbon reduction? How are we going to put some type of voluntary carbon markets in place or other type of voluntary markets like when it comes to plastics? So Yes, some of it is a talk shop. Some of it is going to be MOUs, but that doesn't mean it isn't going to have a real-world impact. Are they going to publish a formal document at the end of this this coming week, what they've actually accomplished? Well, this is a negotiating week. The formal document would certainly come out in, in at the end of the month in Detroit when we get, hopefully, some type of real mechanism in place to begin to address the issue. Supply chain is the easiest. It's the one that should be able to get done. It's the one that every country, who who doesn't want a resilient supply chain? So right, yeah, that one should be able to get done. And when you bring the business leaders together, which is what's happening with the negotiators, and then look, there are going to be people from civil society. There are going to be environmental groups here. There's going to be labor oh, There's going to be here. a lot of agreement around that table. <laughs> well, you've got to get an agreement, though. What because it's hard doesn't mean you don't do it. But on that point, I'm, I'm, my cynicism, I'm a little bit with Glenn on this one because you said can about 15 times. You ended up sounding like President Obama. Yeah, yes, look, we can. We know you're not, we know you're not you're, the spokesperson yeah, for this. We know that. Yeah. Lots of cans and not many wills because it's not necessarily going to be legally binding. I mean, as you've got this golden opportunity in the region, having all these guys together, you mentioned Labour, for example. Could they talk about beyond supply chains and talk about Myanmar? I mean, these issues. Can they talk about things like that could they get anything concrete out of that or will it just be as glenn says more talk shop 
No, they, they, well, one, they, it's 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 limited to the fourteen people who are at the table. So China's not involved. Myanmar's not involved. I mean, this is just I understand. But you, supply chains affects the entire region. You said that, and and that's if you can get a small but diverse membership together, it can usually be a useful springboard to a broader chat. <laughs> a broader chat, but no broader agreement. So if you if you get these fourteen signed on, then others will sign it. Look, TPP started off as a an Asia Pacific initiative. Now the UK's in, mm. right? Because of Brexit, of course, they had to, they no had choice. To, they had to come in. They had no choice. But it does make make a difference. So this is where you start. It's where you need to go. Yes, it's it's going to be contentious. Yes, there's going to be a four hour listening session that MTI is hosting. That is going to be a lot of people complaining, but the government officials need to get something done. It's it's too important to ignore it. All right, Steve, we <laughs> we got to move on. For, look, hope springs eternal. I, I hope they I hope they knock it out of the park and everybody sits down and agrees. Just having seen after eight years of of negotiating with TPP and they had a great deal, how long that took to get some real stuff put together. I just hope that they're you know mar, a margin as successful. Uh, with with IPEF, uh, we will wish them all good luck and Godspeed. Well, we just got a quick comment that's yep. relevant from Don. I believe it's Don saying, "Can they? Sure. Will mm. they? No." <laughs> I'm going to be a little bit more optimistic than Glenn yeah, and Don this week. Yeah. I just you know just want to see some some actual something that's going to mean something. Okay, here we go. We got to move on. Wow, one missing 90-year-old senator is mucking up Joe Biden's judicial and other plans. Uh, senator Dianne Feinstein has been out uh, for about a month now. Uh, she's 90 years old, a key member of the Judiciary Committee in the U.S. Congress. And this is holding up a lot of uh, of, of things for Biden when it comes to especially uh, getting new judges in courts. Tell us about that. Anyway, Dianne Feinstein is great. She is an American. I mean, in some ways you could say she's had a heroic career in the United States. Without her, there probably wouldn't have been an assault weapons ban. Without her, there would not have been that report on the CIA torture program that she put an end to. And for Neil, look, she was in the report and she was in Milk, two great movies. There you go. (laughs) Two great movies. (laughs) Annette Bening played her in the report. I mean, how much better do you get? You know, than having Annette Benning play you. But it's time for her to go. I mean, she is too ill to be in the Senate. She can't go to the Senate. And because she can't go to the Senate, with the Democrats having such a narrow majority, things are not getting done. Mm. And you know, there's Nancy Pelosi is saying, oh, you know, this is this is sexist that when there have been sick male senators, we don't call on them to resign. Well, one that doesn't make it right. Yeah, they should have resigned when they were sick back in the 40s and 80s yeah, yeah. and whenever that occurred. But in a polarized world where Republicans don't ever vote with Democrats, except on extraordinary rare exceptions, where judicial nominees are getting held up because she is too ill to do her job, when she's going to be leaving the Senate next year anyway, she should resign. On a more broader point, Steve, taking it through a Singaporean viewfinder, if you like, the broad consensus is American politicians are just too old. It's not an ageism thing. You've got two possible presidential candidates in their mid-80s. You've got Feinstein holding up legislation. She's almost 90. You've got to look at the optics here. Maybe the American politics don't care, but internationally, the optics 
don't look great, do they? No, <laughs> politicians who should be retired. And the, the, the system is in place where the rejoinder would be, if they're too old, the voters won't vote for it. Okay. And so, and this is an instance where Diane Feinstein, when she got elected you know, nearly six years ago, she could do the job. It's on her now that she can't do the job. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's a shame because her legacy should be, you know, untouchable. But now this could be, you know, the second. It's not going to be the lead in her in her obit whenever she does get an obituary, but it's going to be the second paragraph or the it worse the third paragraph that she stayed on too long. And she shouldn't want to tarnish what should be a wonderful reputation. Same thing happened with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She should have retired when she had the chance to give President the former Obama, Supreme Court, the uh, former justice. Supreme Court justice, because now you get a lifetime tenure there. That's different. The voters don't get to vote you out, and there's different constitutional reasons for that. But now this is the second paragraph or third paragraph in her obit. It's too bad they should, you know, Feinstein should be learning from the Ginsburg example, and she should retire. Let the Democratic governor of California appoint another Democratic senator so that things can get done that Democrats want to get done. Speaking of aging dignitaries and their relevance, King Charles III. God save the king. Coronation today. Heads of state from across the world, including Singapore's president, will be there. We all know this is a big moment for you, Neil. Well, it's a massive event today involving a British guy. I'm having a book (laughs) launch. It's your book launch. (laughs) Tino Cudia. But that aside, that aside... Coronation. As an American, I can only say that we are extraordinarily jealous to see this 74-year-old spring chicken leading his country. (laughs) Oh, leading. Leading leading his country. Hey, look, I mean, and, and, you know, and some Americans are making a big deal of the fact that, uh, you know, Joe Biden's not going and that this is a snub. Well, like no president has ever gone. To a, a coronation, that's just not what we do. Well, in it hasn't the been United one for States. seventy years, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but in our two hundred year history, we've never had anyone Fair go. Enough. And so, so, but no, I mean, I think that there's. I would I would say a couple of things uh, of of how Americans view the monarchy in in King Charles overall. I mean, I would say it's relatively speaking, it's somewhat negative, but. Look, as, as, as one commentator put it, um, if Britain is, is determined to invest into a web of dysfunctional personalities with quasi-spiritual meanings, it's better to have a monarch who cares about some issues that matter than one who doesn't. So good for King Charles with his focus on the climate, and let's hope he can continue to talk mm. about that even though he's not supposed to anymore. <laughs> yes. Very <laughs> diplomatic, Steve. Very diplomatic. All right. We are going to leave it there. Steve, thanks for uh, thanks for all this today. We certainly look forward to uh, hearing how IPEF goes this week. You're going to be all over it, of course, on your social media. Yep. No, I, just, so, I, do, I do have one, just one oh, quick question sure. be- before we go. Yep. Is Neil yes. going to take the oath? Because they are going to say today, all who so desire in the Abbey and elsewhere say together, <laughs> I swear that I will pay true oh, yeah. allegiance to he's, your majesty he's gonna do and that. to your heirs and successors according to law. So help me God.
Neil, will you be taking that oath in Singapore today? I would rather swear allegiance to Steve Oaken <laughs> than to oh. King Charles III. No, of course I won't be taking that nonsense. I don't swear allegiance to anyone except my wife. Oh, there you go. Smart man, smart man. Okay, we got to run, everybody. Thanks, Steve. God Let's save the king. It. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.